I begin this episode by paying respect to the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which I live, the Gadigal people, the traditional custodians of the land my guest lives on, and the people of the Napui tribe of Aotearoa, the maternal people of Olsen Philippaina, and the custodians of the land he was born on. I pay respect to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and I extend that respect to all First Nations people listening to this podcast. Nisam Bulavanaka. Welcome to the Coconut Wireless Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Lardner. My guest today is a uh, someone I'm, I'm really, really excited and honoured to have had on the podcast. It's a gentleman by the name of Patrick Skeen, who uh, he comes from a marketing background, but he's also a journalist and a writer. And he's written a book uh, a couple of years ago called uh, The Big O, The Life and Times of Olsen Filipaina. Now, for those who don't know, we'll go into this uh, in, in, during my chat with Patrick. He is a rugby league player from the 80s of uh, Māori and uh, Samoan background who came over from New Zealand uh, and, and started playing in the, uh, in, in the Australian competition because he sort of outgrew the New Zealand competition over there. And it's, it's, it's a story about, you know, obviously, the man's rugby league career, but also the struggles, yeah, primarily the struggles that he faced as a Pacifica man in what was then still a very sort of Anglo-Celtic-focused uh, uh, game. And, and what he had to go through as a pioneer to sort of break that, break that ceiling so that uh, the, the rest of the uh, Pacifica people that we see now in the game uh, could, could, could sort of benefit. And th- this one's, this book is, it means so much to me personally. So this episode is such a personal, uh, personal thing to me because I read the book when it came out and it, so Patrick is not of Pacifica background, but he's written this book, which is a biography, but also like a guidebook into cultural competency, you know, dealing with especially Pacifica people. And I read this book and for the first time that I can remember, I, I, like I felt, I felt seen. And I hate to use that word because I know it can be quite obnoxious, but that's literally how I felt. Yeah, you know, I thought this person of you know, of, of non pacifica background has, has written this book and he's taken the time to learn about us and our culture and positive ways to interact with that culture. And then he's he's seeking to spread that knowledge to other people. And it, you know, to the extent where this book is now used by the NRL, by uh, they they give it out to all their all their player welfare managers and officers to use because he's done such an amazing job. So um, first off, I was shocked that Patrick would even um, agree to come on the podcast uh, because you know, it's as I keep saying, it's an emerging emerging podcast, emerging platform. But you know, he he very readily agreed, and he's you know, as you'll hear in the chat, he was fantastic. Patrick is someone who uh, yeah, I really respect and I'm so, so, so excited to have had on the podcast. So I've, I've gone on a bit, but uh, without further ado, here's my chat with Patrick Skeen. Uh, joining me on the Coconut Wireless today is a very special guest. He's a well-known journalist and writer and author of the fantastic book, The Big O, The Life and Times of Olson Filipina. He is, of course, Mr. Patrick Skeen. Patrick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's a real privilege to have you on. No, my, my pleasure, Jeremy. All good to talk, 
the big old rugby league. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, as we all are. Um, just to start us off, could you please just tell me and the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background and, and how you got into uh, writing and journalism? At the base of it is a great love of rugby league. When I grew up rugby league, I grew up in a working class family and rugby league gave the whole community a legitimacy and uh, an outlet and it was always a fantastic uh, marker of civic identity. You see it now with Penrith Panthers. Um, you know, people are probably being so proud to live from Penrith because yeah. their boys have that national outlet to, um, to, to the point where people go out and study Penrith and are looking to see what's in the in the water out there and that's norm yeah. not normally a, a thing that happens you know on those outer suburban fringes yeah absolutely uh, so, so i grew up um my two heroes were olsen filipina and i was a balmain supporter originally yeah. and when he left balmain my uh, my business went up for grabs i was from a balmain family and I, I met steve mortimer in a pub in wagga one day and he spoke to me for about half an hour. We were driving yeah. through and stopping off for a meal. And he spoke to me for half an hour. It went well beyond the normal exchange. Mm. Um, and, you know, you realise these players in many ways are, they're just like us. You know, they, sure. they, they, they remember what it was like to talk to their heroes. So he really put some time in. So I just came back and said, Dad, that's that's my guy. Yeah. So I became, became a, a Bulldogs fan. And uh, people can't understand these things. But it, it, for me, it's an illustration of, just how powerful and, and how much magic dust the players have on on, on young kids and um, you know that role modeling piece which I find fascinating yeah absolutely yeah. so as an adult I have a, a, a marketing background and I've been working in sport now for almost 20 years yeah. and that's my core job is uh, is multicultural marketing but we do a lot of connecting communities and brands so um, we've been doing Every Socceroos game for the past 15 years, or most Socceroos games, we've marketed the away bay. Uh, we, did yeah, the Asian wow. Cup. we did the Asian Cup, which was supposed to be a nightmare, and you know we worked very hard on that to turn it into pound for pound, one of the greatest uh, soccer events this country's had. We worked on the Rugby League World Cup, which gave us a real insight into the disconnection between the NRL and the international game, and the international game remains a renovator's delight, waiting for someone to, um, to come and unlock it, and it's really taken... The Pacific nations and their rise in competitiveness and mm. um, are opting to go to play for their cultural ancestry as opposed to their geographical home that has kick-started what I call the the Pacific Revolution uh, which yeah. I saw coming from a long time ago where I grew up with the first round of Polynesians were coming through sure. and we used to play on baked hard um, pitches in high school and I just remember getting relentless then. There was the, the days where the spear tackle wasn't outlawed, which changed yeah. my age. And uh, we would just get pummeled into to, to the turf by big Polynesian guys. And I was like, ooh, this, yeah. is, uh, <laughs> this is a new thing in our game, just the physical, the physical, the love, the love of the physicality and the tough stuff that's in, sure. in a lot of community members and players. Yeah, absolutely. So I um, worked out how can I most make a difference. And for me, I've always been a storyteller. I've always been a writer technically in my work. So um, I went on a mission because I'm always, I work with 120 different multicultural communities and they're always yeah, telling wow. me about this hero or that hero. Mm. Why don't we know more about this guy? And um, was was one of those guys who sit in the mythology of rugby league, the, the Garbo who climbed out of reserve grade yep. to uh, meet King Wally Lewis, the greatest rugby league player that we've ever seen after his his very best year ever. 
and I wrote a story about Nelson for the started writing for the Guardian in 2014. These forgotten stories that you know, I I don't believe we can be a, a complete nation until we are the full sum sum of our of our stories. We have to have everyone's stories at the centre. So yeah. I take great pleasure in resurfacing and recentering some of these stories and just see uh, how they go, how much interest people have in these these pioneers. They're often pioneer stories, the first ones to to come through. Um, and there's an old saying that pioneers always have arrows in their back. But I see in that an ability of struggle, and often these guys are quite reluctant. They haven't signed up for this role. They've just turned up to play a game they love. Sure. And, and have had to go through more than everybody else to, to play that game. So I think um, I think those stories deserve sunlight, and I take yeah. great delight in telling them. So I, I tell those kind of stories for for the Guardian. And my original plan was whichever one really goes nuts, because the Guardian have said, "Bring us what stories you think are fascinating in Australian history." So I put them forward, and Ian Roberts, which I always think is a bravery that few of us will ever understand for. Yeah a rugby league player to come out as gay in, in 1985. Yeah. Uh, sorry, 1995. Um, that's, for me, just such a phenomenal, incredible thing. So I wrote a, a story on, on my take on, on Ian Roberts. I wrote one on Cecil Romali. He was the first ever um, half, he was half Punjabi, half Aboriginal rugby union player for the Wallabies, who mm-hmm. first played in 1938, and no one knew about him. And all of a sudden, when I'm writing these stories, they're starting to appear on the websites of the sporting bodies. So it's like, okay, this is a rebirthing of the stories with some narrative around it, not just played two or four games, because the number of games played for Pines don't really tell the story. They, they obviously, just by the nature of barriers, play less than they would have if they weren't a pioneer. So you have sure. to look into other things. And of all the ones I wrote, Olsen's story went viral. It went nuts. That first one on The Guardian was 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 wild. It really t- tapped into a nerve. And so I thought, <clears throat> you know, time to be brave and go on my own hero's journey in a way and a step up from 2020 cricket, which is two and a half thousand words, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and write a book. And so, you know, I woke up some days thinking, wow, because it's so, so difficult to write a book. It's, it's so different from the from nine to five, um, as far as you don't ever get to switch off. Your brain is constantly linking chapter three to chapter seven. A key theme emerges. How do you get that key theme into the book? You've got the laborious research, which I say laborious. It's, it's, it's actually the most fun part. It's like a, a detective scouring through records. And there's an underlying narrative that if you're a writer, you actually have to get it out of it. That's the legitimacy and the, and the permission piece. So took me six about six months to get Olsen's trust uh, yeah. like a lot of Pacific people they don't trust instinctively they've been burnt or their parents have been burned and they've, they've seen people turn up with you know promises of yellow brick roads sure and uh, so it took me a while had to go out for a few meals every way to Polynesians yeah. <laughs> and so much great things done through food um, in the Pacific it's it's not rushed. Um, you know, a, a rushed refueling pit stop. It's um, it's exchange of culture, and there's a hierarchy on who talks, and everybody. You know, we hear about everybody's day, and I just think, um, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans. So I got Olsen's trust, and then we went on a journey. We were 50-50 partners in the book, 
yeah. which um, which was which was cool and got him a few checks. And uh, more importantly, uh, he said to me before he passed away that he feel like there was a weight off his shoulders. Oh, that's good. And and that that tells me that um, when someone's narrative or story's out there that's not true, it's it's almost a physical yeah. form of harm on the brain that that's not what happened from their point of view. Yeah. And there's many, there's many truths as they, as they say, it just depends on the lens. So that's how I came to, um, that's how I came to, to, to write it. And then it became one of those things halfway through. I, uh, the publisher pulled out the university of Queensland said they didn't want to proceed. So, which was a bit of a, sometimes you feel I was more feel like I was let down, Olsen. But then we we actually found a New Zealand publisher, which meant it went through a full round of publicity, which my Australian publicity publicist would never have done. Yeah, right. Because you. Most, oh, sorry, you go. You go. Most important for me that the New Zealand people knew what what happened to their boy when he left in 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 at the age of twenty three. They never knew. He just yeah. popped up to the Kiwis, but there was a whole story. So. I felt like I was filling in a missing, missing, missing gap for the New Zealand people, and it sold pretty well over there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, look, uh, most well, many of my listeners would be um, would be familiar with with um, aspects of uh, who Olsen was and 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 some of his story. But uh, just for those who aren't, could you just give us a, a little bit of a, a rundown of uh, who Olsen was? Olsen, in many ways, was the first great Pacific playmaker a lot of the pacific players that had come over to australia oscar danielson samoan uh, eddie heatley uh, henry tartana were big multi forwards and uh, he was the first and then there's a stereotype out there that just like in the us in basketball that they don't play the brains positions so olsen had a particular uh, role to play in opening up people's minds that um that Pacifica players could be playmakers as well. And he was a once in a generation talent. And I'd put him alongside uh, Fred Arcoy, who was also once in, and Fred Arcoy didn't fire that well in Australia for a host of reasons, but they were two truly gifted players that came on at one time. And the feeling in New Zealand was that if Olsen didn't make it in Australia, this great, amazing player who was carving up in what they call the Fox Memorial Cup, which was the, the Winfield Cup of the order, the NRL of New Zealand. And it was quite strong back then. It was on TV and they played a, a different style to Australia. And there's a few moments in the history books where they've been able to ambush the kangaroos with a freewheeling uh, half structure, half instinct style of play that the kangaroos aren't ready for. They're so yep. regimented and structured in the NRL, the Kiwis were able to on short notice, throw together the teams and ambush them. Yeah. So I always, you know, we were always fascinated by these guys in their black and white who would pop up and these new names would appear in our life for these for these test matches. And Olsen was one of those on the 1978 tour. He came over here and impressed everybody. And Olsen was a standout, I suppose, in that he didn't want to come to Australia. And that makes his story compelling. He was very much a mummy's boy. He just wanted to stay with his mother in Auckland and have, he was 23, so he was a, a mature age addition to the Australian system when in 1980 he came across. So you've got the great Kiwi playmaker of a generation, doesn't want to come over. His mother says, you have to go. You've got these talents that your brothers don't have. And, um, you know, sitting around here driving a forklift is, is, is not the use of those talents. It was only upon his mother's insistence. And his mother then made him swear that he would not be violent. He would never 
strike back in a Jackie Robinson style oath. So he had to, he broke it a few times, but he had to sort of by his mother's decree. And I mean, you know, it's hard outside the Polynesian and Melanesian communities to understand that you don't let your mother down, you do what your parents say. It's such yeah, sure. a, an amazing cultural clash and so hard for people to get around because in the Western model, you you can't wait to get away with your parent from your parents. Yeah. That's your gradu personal graduation piece when you leave. And you're not, by and large, thinking about the financial welfare of your parents. You're, in many ways, solely focused on, and you think you're doing the right thing by your parents by by being as independent as possible. Yeah. I learned about this, um, you know, the, the collectivist uh, culture, and I think both sides have a lot to learn from each other, and there's a hybrid model in between because there's a loneliness pandemic around oh, of course. see that the Polynesian extended family system actually mitigating against um you know you don't allow your community members to get isolated because we've seen the suicides in Polynesian and Melanesian communities when people get isolated from from their Aiga and their whanau um so you know Olsen leaving his mum in in Auckland was a massive thing and he'd already been racially abused on his first tour so he took what I call the hero's journey lip, where the reluctant hero just takes the plunge into the new lands to open up the possibilities for for those to follow. And, and you go through the road of trials and, and mentors appear like they did. So Peter Leach, Sir Graham Lowe, um, Wayne Wiggum, a teammate in Balmain, he had this ad hoc support network that supported him through his Australian journey. But when he arrived here after a year, he came up against so you've got Olsen, the last of the freewheeling, instinctive players who played for fun, didn't do road runs, versus Frank Stanton, his coach at the Balmain Tigers, who was the most famous old-school taskmaster, taskmaster disciplinarian. To earn the name Cranky Frankie in late 70s, early 80s rugby league in Australia is a hard-earned and not easily given nickname, and that was it. So you've got the greatest Kiwi player of a generation, and Frank Stanton didn't like outsiders. He didn't like the Queensland. wasn't just a race, It wasn't a race thing. He, he, he didn't rate Queensland as well because Sydney, like even today, like Melbourne in the AFL, they believe they are truly the epicenter of the rugby league world, and all of the provinces should be beholden to 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 their wishes. And that was the case back. It was very very insular. We're talking five years out, out of their white Australia policy. So Australia hadn't been trained in diversity and had that experience of diversity that a lot of us growing up had today. So you've got this massive clash of, of cultures, also at the tip of the spear of what we have learned to be this big Polynesian uh, wave. And he's a quiet, what I liked him, why I wanted to write about him, because he was a quiet, humble, shy guy. He was, to me, the very essence of the rugby league I loved. He was a Garbo on a, on, 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 on a Monday morning after a hard game of rugby league on a, on, on a Sunday afternoon, and that's incredible. I remember when I played rugby league, I was like a statue until <laughs> until Wednesday. The thought of doing four hours, and let's not forget, it wasn't the you know the truck pulling in. There were these heavy, heavy, heavy metal bins that you'd have to throw a thousand down in a shift, or between yeah. you and your between you and your guys, you're doing 500 each, hanging off the back of trucks. So that, for me, is outside war and you know, fighting off 
uh, disease and, and, and facing death. That's as, that was as brave as it got for me to be a full-time worker. Yeah. And I love that they were, and that, 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 that being embedded in the community made them just one of us. You couldn't yep. work both ways. It kept those guys' egos in check. Um, and they also were more humble and humility and more loved by their, by their communities. Yeah. So he um, was a superstar for New Zealand. When he pulled on the black and white, he was one of the greatest players ever for New Zealand. And he's, he's in the New Zealand Legends of League Hall of Fame. So he's a fully fledged New Zealand Hall of Famer. But he had a reputation for inconsistency in Australia, and I studied every single newspaper cutting, all papers, everything from the era. And it is incredible to me how much the players say it was completely undeserved. They used to read the the match uh, guide on the day and dread facing Olsen. They all admitted it. Wally Lewis said he was the second best 5'8 he ever played against behind Brett Kenny. Yeah, well. And I believe Brett Kenny absolutely should be an immortal. No, yeah. no question. Next round, disgraceful he's not there. Um, and so really we're talking, um, you know, only another immortal, as far as the great one was concerned, gave him more trouble or much trouble consistently than Brett Kenny. So we're talking about what I believe to be a great of the game, mm-hmm. um, who, who had become a bit of a punchline in Australia for a guy who didn't play well. And so whenever someone plays okay in the NRL and then they get selected internationally and play well, they use Olsen as the stereotype, which is lazy. Yeah, right. And I found out it's nonsense because I spoke to, you know, 50 players and they all said it was absolute nonsense. We as players, we love the guy. He was the last of that generation that, that, that didn't want to run and everybody listened to him in the change rooms. Mm. So he's, um, he's this perfect point in history where um and then in 1985 you can't possibly understate how big that was in new zealand they've just come off nine years of robert piggy muldoon targeting and vilifying the pacific communities to the point where they did not feel part of new zealand and all of a sudden this team pops up captained by mark graham you've got tough guy kevin tamady you've got olsen the playmaker in the middle you've got the little street smart um, you know, street smart little rat type character, Clayton French sneaking around. At one stage, he sneaks through a whole scrum and pops up the other side. Stuff we've never seen before. Just with the rat cunning of 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 you know an NRL halfback today. Just always just a full bag of a full bag of tricks and getting into holes that he shouldn't. James Luluai, the great sorcerer. Samoan Sorcerer, all these guys that they're beating up Australia, hugging, they're they're showing New Zealand for the first time what's possible. We can all be together. We don't have to vilify and put each other down and allow the government to divide us. So that 1985 is, uh, and it was a really big year in in New Zealand on on many levels. The Rainbow Warrior blew up. They had a new uh, Polynesian-friendly Prime Minister. It was uh, it was an amazing time, and there's Olsen and, and and Mark Graham, these colossal figures, where rugby league is kind of overtook rugby union for for a little time in in the New Zealand nationhood. So Olsen's at the the spearhead of all this, and then he goes to North Sydney to uh, to, to to play for North Sydney, and then then Cranky Frankie comes there again, and effectively ends his NRL his his New South Wales rugby league slash NRL career. Uh, there and then, and Olsen just went and played in the bush and and just faded away back into his uh, to his garbo run. Sure, 
Yeah, right. Um, you, you you touched on it uh, just uh, a little while ago, and I, I know you've you've made the comparison before between Olsen's story and and some of the great sort of legends and myths where you've got the reluctant hero uh, who goes on his epic quest uh, to you know, quote unquote slay the dragon and is helped along the way by various sort of seers and and wise men. And Olsen's story has all of those things. It, was it a surprise to you that you were the first one to want to write a book about it? I think if you don't come at it from the perspective that he was a failure in the New South Wales Rugby League, it's an amazing story. But that narrative had prevailed so deeply in her, and, and, and that was one of my main ambitions was to provide people with talking points in the pub to and, and and a strong evidence base to counter what was it what's a crippling laboring under that sort of crippling stereotype when you failed when, when he didn't at all yeah um they kept firing they kept uh, putting him into reserves if he was late for training or something like that and now they've been proven absolutely wrong yep. now it's all yep. personalized man management it's not one size fits all it's not why are you different mate it's hey mate you are different that's fantastic and let's Let's not put you on road runs. Let's put. Let's have you playing squash for yeah. your fitness. You just got to get your cardio in. So it's completely turned around, and they flog these guys. And you go to the old rugby league reunions; none of all their knees are shot from these ten k road runs. Yeah. Yeah. You can't do that a hundred those consistent and not do long term damage. So they brutalized and ruined bodies of these guys. So Olsen was right. Now it's about. Guy who goes meets Graham Lowe, and that probably I, I, this book is a two in one. It's a cultural competence handbook wrapped in a story because the NRL have purchased sixty of these. It's gone out to all their welfare managers. It's it's being used as a textbook now, but a much more accessible, not wrapped in footnotes that jolt you around a big, grand, sweeping narrative from a tiny little cabbage tree that he was born under. And I went up there. It's so far away. You just, you can't believe when you're standing at Olsen Ground Zero or on his Marae um, and it's so quiet just in the middle of the Napui scrub that such a great man could come from here. Like a lot of people who have those really humble origin stories, you just can't see all of the pieces that had to connect that get, have him at Carlow Park just carving up King Wally uh, un, un, uh, mercilessly. So uh, yeah, he was. Um, he, he, he was the hero's journey, and I, I based it and structured it on the hero's journey. A lot of the films we see from Star Wars to Nemo to Moana are all structured on that old hero's journey. I, I don't know if you know the backstory with Joseph Campbell. Have you read no, the book? No. There's, a, there's a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and Joseph Campbell studied over two hundred countries, uh, cultures, foundation myths. And he found the only story that survived campfire after campfire was freakily the hero's journey is the only one that people are interested in in retelling. It starts with the humility and reluctance. There's a grand quest, um, road of trial, slays the dragon and returns with the magic elixir for the rest of the tribe that opens up back in those days was new farming lands or access to blueberries or a new fishing place or... You know, often might have slaughtered their big warrior or um, come back and made peace with the guys that have been harassing you for 200 years. So life was just a series of 
of heroes journeys into the unknown and based um based it on that structure because uh, it's what awesome it's fitted so perfectly and anyone that fits the hero's journey perfectly deserves a story but the old aussie journalists wouldn't have been thinking in those terms because they also didn't know about his new zealand story cool. and a lot of the Kiwi journalists didn't know about his australian story uh, so it just required uh, a link piece and there are a lot of stories out there but the also the 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 rugby league book market is at its lowest as well. Right. So it must be a passion project. It must outside, you know, historical, um, you know, hundred years of the dragons type, which have a, you know, just a, a pretty, a, but outside your Joey Johns's and your Jonathan Thurston's, they don't sell that well because everyone's attention span has been augmented. Sure. So to do it now, you, you, you need to be, really wanting to tell that story and Olsen was my hero and I thought mm. I can actually um and he's done me a favor with a massive performing piece on the Guardian yeah and you know I just got almost a religious sense of mission because it was three years of pain there was a knockback in the middle I lost my eyesight halfway through wow uh, you know just which was everyone says was going to happen around you know around that time in your 40s your, your, your eyes can start to go but it was all these little things get holding up and I was like, oh, I've sort of manufactured a bit of a hero's journey myself through because a couple yeah. of times I almost gave up. Um, and then some people appeared that, you know, had the right word in my ear that it doesn't matter, you've got to finish this. And then, of course, Olsen dies uh, last year. So yeah. I did the eulogy. I don't know if you saw. Um, I did the eulogy at his funeral at Leichhardt Oval. Yeah, beautiful. Um, yeah. A lot of time and effort into, into that because... I, one of my pet peeves in life is a bad eulogy that's kind of filled with in-jokes and, you know, yeah. it, particularly if it's a great person, it's the only mm. time all of their friends will ever be together in one time. It's yeah. something that needs to be taken very seriously. Yeah. So we had plans. Olsen had just been, um, the, the New Zealand Rugby League had just appointed or just approved for Olsen to become the first ever a Kiwis global ambassador. Yeah, wow. And he was going to be talking to just calling Kiwis that are playing over here because we've got a lot of Pacific and Maori boys playing in the country as well. Yep. Yeah, up. right. In the old days, you used to say, yeah, we need a Gulgong needs a front rower or yeah. we need a fullback. And there would be enough people in the city that would just go for an adventure. But that's changed a bit with, you know, everyone flocking to the city. Sure. So there's a lot of people out there that can be isolated. So Olsen's job was to talk, you know, just to go and talk to the guys. He suffered terrible depression. He didn't leave yep. the house basically for for two years under the siege of uh, of, of Frank Stanton's regime. So he's a living, breathing, and and particularly the, the softer and gentle Polynesians and Melanesians um, who aren't the big macho guys. A lot of them in rugby league that are mummy's boys. And Olsen has particular resonance for those guys just by his very making it. That you didn't of have course. to be the big macho extrovert. You could just be. Um, you know, that, that Polynesian temperament, I'd say 50% of the guys have that. Yeah. 50% yeah. are extroverts and, you know, not that much different to the Anglos in many ways. They mm -hmm. don't hold back. They don't take credit. They'll, sh they'll shoot back if someone criticizes them, even an elder. But there's some of them still have that old Samoan, won't look their elder in the eyes. They put their eyes sure. down the floor. And that was all fascinating stuff for me to, you know, uncover and put in the book. Yeah. To, to, to teach people about, you know, what can go wrong in these in these cultural clashes you're not being insulted if they're not looking at you they're they're actually paying you respect yeah absolutely um look as you as you said it's um you the the book is 
um, a biography of, a, of, of an amazing man and also a, um, a guidebook into cultural competency. How, how far into the planning process or the, or the writing process of the book did you realise that that was going to have to be the makeup where you, the cultural competency aspect was, was going to need to be a major part of it? It was, uh, it was a pillar all the way through because in my day job, I used to teach cultural competence to sports, oh. actually go in and do the whole unconscious bias thing. And that's, what, that's why I got out of it. Yeah. It was people who viewed you as compliance and couldn't wait for you to leave. There was no, they felt they were being framed as guilty by needing this. Um, yeah. And that's why I thought best to get into the storytelling business here where I have a proven method of, of changing minds of the evidence. And I, people are smart enough to make up their own. You don't actually have to conclude it. You just have to put it out there. Um, and it just has, has rebirthed my belief in everything should be in story form. If we Anglos or Pacific, it doesn't matter. We're getting to the stage where uh, traditional methods of rote learning don't get anything in. And in fact, in those lessons, people are just waiting for the stories anyway, mm. you know, for the, like, in, in one case, if you go and do your own translation, people love some of the, the stories that have come out of, you know, lost in translation. It's always the highlight. But I go through, you know, half an hour of right brain, left brain and whatever, and you just see you, you, you lose people. So that was a big thing for me. And people said, why don't you tell the story? And so no, I'd like to get some theory in there, even theory on the racism. You know, one fascinating yeah. study, study in the US where uh, African-American parking inspectors get called all sorts of names, but the moment they get racially abused, they, they're beyond counselling. Yeah. Um, it, it strikes at the very heart. They can't function properly after that point. And all sure. these people that said, you know, just wear it and, you know, what's the difference being called fat and being called an ethnic slur? Yeah. Um, because these families are so tight and even, even the mangling of the surnames, people just what a great example of cultural clash. You've got Polynesians and Melanesians who, for whom their name is everything. It's the heritage. Yep. It's... It's in the old, you have, you know, the, the um, genealogy sticks. Um, Samoans, you know, could tell you stories about great great grandfathers that have been, yeah. have been passed down. So these names are everything. And then commentators will just mangle them and really almost, it was a joke back in the old days. And then you say, okay, well, what's behind that? And then you look at the record for consecutive number one albums in Australia is a guy called Billy Birmingham. Yeah. And for eight number ones in a row, his Christmas album mocked ethnic sporting names. It, yeah. was, it, it was number one's bestseller. Don't release your album at Christmas if you want to be number one because Billy's got you. Yeah. And we all laughed along, you know. It was yeah. We were all in a different time. And now we know the damage, but it was part of our culture. Like in your case, um, you know, Petro, the actual... Oh. The actual Fijian pronunciation of Sivanathiva is like it's it's amazing. Yeah. Like, yeah. You think you're getting it right when you say Sivanathiva. You think you're, yeah. you know, you're, but then they used to say, you know, Tommy Radonikas and all those guys would call him, you know, petrol 70 cents a yeah. meter. Yeah, yeah. I can see the cleverness that's gone into yeah. it. But we didn't know back then how insulting that was to 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 to, to do wordplay with somebody's name. So yeah. That's an example of two groups that have come on a journey. One group's had to take a bit of mocking about names. As long as they see everyone's sure. being sort of mocked and they're part yeah. of that. Yeah, and the yeah. other way, commentators continually get it wrong. And, you know, yeah. your, your son is making his debut for the first time and people are around the TV set 
in Samoa and yeah. South Auckland and Western Sydney, the whole Aiga is tuning in and then they yeah. the name on the first time it's ever yeah. spoken on, on national TV. And, and you, you don't get that back. You don't get that moment back, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. You can never step into the same river twice. It's going to be a different yeah. – it's going to be a different, yeah. it's going to be a different river. So – um, I, I knew most of this going in, but I didn't know the depth. And I thought if I provide theory, if I really want this to be kept by people, number one, and not just thrown away as a rollicking story, but used as a reference, mm. there are um, theoretical pieces put threaded through this, like the happiness advantage great book um, that just talks about how players play better when they're happy. Simple. Yeah. Uh, but you know, some racism things, some 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 theoretical definitions of of the power of cultural competence, and then bringing in guys like Alex Ferguson and twinning him with uh, with Graham Lowe as part of this first generation of of personalised man managers, and then Graham Lowe saying, "I learn everything from Jack Gibson." Mm. That beautiful thing when no one thinks they're self-made, everybody realises they're standing on the shoulders of giants, and that's how the um, that's how Heine's may not have the numbers but they made people they made people believe yeah yeah absolutely um so the, the your, your books uh obviously done quite well it's been out for two and a half three years now around around may, there may 2020 yeah. oh yeah, yeah. coming up to yeah. the anniversary. came out during covid so it's been like an endless an endless launch yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but the good thing is um you know, I could go and talk about it now, and I'd still get a good crowd of people. Um, yeah. People interested. Lots of gratitude. That's been, I suppose, the word gratitude from the family. Gratitude from um, from people who had formed a hard opinion about Olsen. Yeah. And had revised that opinion. Yeah. And um, now that allows me to move on to my next book. So I've got um, a new book coming out on the history of Chinese heritage, Aussie rules players. Oh, lovely. So Chinese have been playing since 1882 yeah, right. in Bendigo. First Chinese professional sports person was a gentleman called Joe, in the world, was a gentleman called Job Fong in 1907. He played for South Fremantle in the AFL and they're in the Waffle, sorry, of the West Australian Football League. And I've got 60 stories um, all from the gold rush to women in the AFLW now that have Chinese heritage. Yeah, wow. And this is, this is a different example. This is a 60 mini bios but this is mm -hmm. an example of manifesting a tradition into the world that, that wasn't there before yeah you know the first guy chin kit the first guy who ended up in launceston he's now to the arch family who were an aboriginal chinese group up in derby way up in the mm -hmm. northwest so um that for me is um another example they are just olsen in, in another guy and this will it's come about from government by the government, Australian government on one, because they're really interested in projects that rebuild Chinese Australian sense of belonging and identity, which has taken a, a double battering from COVID and some of the geopolitical stuff going on in the in the Pacific and yeah, sure. uh, which should be perceived as aggressive. And the Chinese Australians, <clears throat> a lot of them who came here for a better life to uh, you know get away from some of that stuff, have copped it terribly. Yeah. So a book linking them in um as a founding stone of australia is uh i think going to be a very powerful book and perform a similar role for the chinese 
that a book like Olson's has done for, for Polynesians. It's just that yeah, sense absolutely. of uh, we're not interlopers, we're not Jonathan Lately's. We've always, Pacific people have always been part of rugby league. The very first uh, year of rugby league, there was multi players. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this, this narrative that it's our game that someone else is sneaking into. It needs to be crushed like a wormy apple. Just get, stop that narrative because that always has people as the other. Yep. And no one likes to be the other. We're herd, we're herd animals and we fear exclusion. So, and it's only when you've been through serious exclusion can you ever understand how it feels. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, thank you so much for your time. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, just to just to finish up, um, I'm sure there'll be people listening who who want to sort of follow you and and your work. Um, how can how can people find you on social media or, or wherever? I'm on Twitter. I'm on, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. <clears throat> so Patrick underscore Skeen on Twitter, and just search uh, Patrick Skeen on on LinkedIn, and you'll uh, you'll find me there. I pretty much write a story every day. A storyteller's got to <clears throat> has got to tell stories. So that's how I keep my um, keep sharp. And uh, I write stories of inspiration and pioneers in in, in sport. And um, I mostly stick to sport because I think people love that dopamine, that little dopamine hit in the morning of something of something positive before they before they charge into battle so that's the a service i try and provide beautiful all right well um as i said thank you so much um thank you for your time thank you for coming on um and all the best with the new book and um all the rest of your wonderful work great stuff thanks so much jeremy and that was my chat with patrick skate uh as i said he's uh he's an amazing writer all-around good guy so if you haven't already please make sure you get yourself a copy of The Big O, Life and Times of Olson Filipina. It's, uh, it's a really important book. It's an amazing book, and it's uh, it's freely available. It's fa- available uh, digitally, uh, so you, you can find it on Amazon or you know, wherever you like to to uh, get your get your digital books. And uh, the hard copies are easy to find. They're, they're everywhere, and you know, if you want to get a second-hand copy, they're, they're all over eBay and, and what have you as well. So um, get yourself a copy read it and then uh, tell your family and friends about it because it, you know, it really is just a fantastic book and um, and, a, and a really important one to have on the bookshelf. Um, please also follow Patrick on uh, Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, he, he puts up a lot of good content and uh, you know, he, he's just a good guy to follow. So you can, uh, as he said, search him up or I'll, I'll also put uh, the links to his pages in the show notes for this episode. Lastly, uh, just the usual housekeeping, uh, please follow the Coconut Wireless on um, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, if, you, if you're not already, uh, especially Instagram, that's where most of the content is going up. But uh, yeah, wherever you like to sort of consume your, your social media um, stuff, uh, we're, we're there. So we're not on TikTok yet, uh, but we'll get there one day. I just need to take some dance lessons so I can uh, fit in with the rest of them on there. Um, and uh, if you haven't already, please, 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 please uh, subscribe to this podcast and, uh, and rate it and review it if you want. You, know, you don't have to, but certainly the five-star ratings help. Um, you know, it's, it's the easiest way to promote the podcast and to get more eyes on it, which is uh, the ultimate aim, as well as entertaining you, uh, the people who've already found it. So uh, without further ado, a, uh, a big uh, hello to our, our Māori and uh, other New Zealand listeners. There's a big bulk of the listenership is actually from uh, the community. Uh, happy Waitangi Day. Uh, as of recording, it is Waitangi Day. Uh, I'll try and get it out today as well. Uh, but yeah, however you're marking the day or celebrating the day, uh, please make sure you're doing it in a happy and safe safe way. 
Uh, lots of love to you and the family. And, uh, and to all of the listeners, uh, that's it for this episode. Until next time, be good to yourselves, be good to each other, and I'll catch you next week.